I'm finding myself having to take a deep breath. We've had some hard stories from our Bible this fall. It is hard to give thanks as a community for some of these stories. Some of them have been repackaged as children's Bible stories with cute animals or as heroic escapes, leaving out the death altogether. There is no getting around that the story we heard this morning is not for children. It is potentially triggering, and if that is the case for you, I'm sorry. The Bible is really hard. Somehow this story has been cleansed and sanitized throughout history. David is forever the scrappy kid who defeated the giant, or the heroic king prominent in the family line of the patriarchs to Jesus. But I have never been able to read this story without feeling enraged. Frankly, it's been very hard for me to write this this sermon, even this paragraph that I'm speaking to you right now, without using foul language and calling David some very unfamily-friendly names. When I was 15, I sat in a crowded service taxi in Amman, Jordan. It's a taxi, but it kind of it runs on a bus route. So many people use them at the same time. Up to four people squished into the back seat. My mom was on my left, <clears throat> and probably a 30-something man was on my right. And while we drove, the man's hand <clears throat> began to sneak up my leg under the coat I was carrying. From my knee, it inched further up and further up, and I clenched my legs, and I froze. When our stop finally came, I bolted out after my mom. I did never tell her or anyone for a really long time. That's my hashtag, me too. Every woman has a story something like this. Honestly, I feel, and isn't this awful, I feel bad for crying. Every woman has a story like this, or worse. Bathsheba's story is much, much worse. Stories of consent and of violation have been front and center in our media these weeks. In this past year or more, listening to Christine Blasey Ford's testimony a couple weeks ago and seeing the man who took his privilege and his power for granted from the time he was a teenager be given essentially a free pass. Consent can be broken down to three words. Ask, listen, respect. Dr. Ford's encounter with others would have gone quite differently had Brett followed through on those three words. But our interactions, in our interactions with others, consent is not only about bodies and touching and hugging and kissing, although autonomy over our own bodies is a very basic, it's a fundamental thing that we should understand and respect, including hugs and kisses even from beloved relatives, from beloved intimate partners. 
Children are beginning to learn this on flip charts in school. Ask for consent, listen to the answer, and respect the answer that you received. When you want to borrow your friend's ruler, when you want to sit beside someone in the cafeteria, when you need to move your neighbor's backpack because it's in your way. And honestly, I am also still learning this. I can put my finger on a couple of things I did this week where if I had followed these rules, I would not have harmed a relationship or had to apologize for something later. Maybe some of you have heard or seen the video about the tea analogy about consent. I invite you to uh, go to our website later and look up the link that I will put there. It elaborates on how consent works in an amorous encounter by talking about tea. Do you want to have some tea? Yes, I'd love to have tea with you. Okay, I'll make some tea. I don't want tea anymore, maybe just water? What I don't say in that situation? No, you have to have tea. You look really thirsty for tea and I already made the tea. What I don't do? Put the teacup up against your mouth and pour the tea into your mouth even though your lips are clenched and you really don't want to have tea with me. What I do say? Let me get you that water. I'll put this tea away for now, or maybe I'll drink it myself. I do not get annoyed or upset because you decided you're not into tea right now. Just because you drank tea last week doesn't mean you want to have tea with me right now. And an unconscious person definitely cannot drink tea. And you should make sure that person is safe, not pour tea into their mouth. So, okay, it may be inappropriate for me to layer today's cultural context about consent and the understandings that we have now after generations of finally listening at least a little bit to women's stories. It may be inappropriate for me to layer that onto the cultural context of Israel and the interaction, the encounter. Encounter is such a small word to describe what happened between David and Bathsheba. The culture of David and Bathsheba is not the same as the culture we live in now, thanks be to God. And difficult as it is for me to remember that, though, as I remember Bathsheba's place, and I can only read this through her eyes. With Saul and then David becoming king, power has been centralized in Israel. As Sue said, its empire is coalescing. Kingdoms and political power are established and maintained at this time through marriage, through brokering through powerful fathers for marriageable daughters. David has at least three wives to this point in the story, in his kingship. And the greater the hierarchy, the more likely it is to be centralized in men, here in one man, and the less and less power that women have, the further toward the bottom they fall. Unlike in the era of judges in Israel's history, over which we've taken a giant leap in the narrative lectionary this fall, it was a more chaotic time, but also a time in which charismatic leadership rose to the fore, including rulers like Deborah or Jael, to have status in that context. 
And you can see this happening throughout the history of the church, too. In the early church, women leaders led were apostles, but then the church began to be established, began to be centralized, began to be part of empire. And in the early days of Anabaptism, Anabaptism even, there were women who preached and prophesied, but as the church became more formal, that fell away. Even in this relatively flat hierarchy, where all people, all people are priests. And we've only just kind of sort of begun to change that in the church. But even, let's look at this story in light of the Ten Commandments, which we heard only a couple of Sundays ago, and the covenant relationships that we've been hearing about from the beginning of September, even by the standards of that time, David is a complete, insert bad word here. I really couldn't think of something bad enough to describe how I think about David that I could say in this context. He completely misuses his power in summoning and assaulting Bathsheba. And then without a second thought, uses his position to give his actions legitimacy, ensuring the death of a prominent leader under him. Even if, as was true in that context, Bathsheba is described only in relationship to her father, Iliam, and wife, her husband, Uriah, essentially property, even then, in his context of a covenant relationship dictated by a gift of law by God, We heard it reiterated by Joshua last week. Even then, David believes himself to be above it. And it is his belief, it's his belief that this blessing, these gifts by God, enable him to do what he wants. Shirk his duty, take, adulterate, murder. And how many more commandments did he break? One pastor that I met with this past week says with his Lutheran, with his confirmation class, he has them go through all the commandments and see how many of them David broke. He says all of them, except Sabbath. And second, the way much of this history has been told and retold is really problematic. There are a couple of ways in particular that I think are emblematic in Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. You know what I'm talking about. Jeff Buckley made it even more famous. Problem number, number one, David is a hapless romantic, a baffled king composing Hallelujah, overthrown by moonlight and beauty. In my opinion, moonlight and beauty don't negate consent or assault. In fact, I think the intense, well-meaning bumblers among men are often given the greatest pass because dogged pursuit, even if rebuffed, is read as romantic when from a woman's perspective, it's just short of stalking. See every romantic comedy ever. And second, Bathsheba is a sultry seductress, bathing in the open as a lure, trying to op- tying, tying David to the kitchen chair in Cohen's ballad. In fact, the text is basically neutral about Bathsheba, both in emotion and in intent. It was David strolling on the roof, looking into windows that he shouldn't have, 
presumably giving him a view into somewhere private where Bathsheba is bathing. And with a power such as he has, she has, she has no option. She has no recourse except to come when she is summoned. David sees something he wants and he takes it. A colleague in ministry, Amy Yoder McLaughlin, who's a pastor in Pennsylvania, shared a sermon with me about, uh, that she wrote about this story. She says this, The lack of humanity with which David treats Bathsheba and the lack of humanity with which we have been told in this story is a, is a symptom of a spiritual illness. It's a narcissism that insists on telling the story from the perspective of the powerful. It's a narcissism that desires to be in David's place, that wants to satisfy our own needs rather than being present to the pain of others. This is the same narcissism that limits even the vision of the writers of the Hebrew Hebrew scripture, who cannot manage, despite their gifted writing skills, to give a woman a voice. There is so much of Bathsheba left out even in verses 4 and 5 that are the heart of this story. So David sent messengers to fetch him, to fetch her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, "I am pregnant." Even her name is left out of the verses. She is the woman. And in much of the rest of this text, she is just Uriah's wife, or just she. Where is the good news? Is there good news? I see it in Nathan. Prophets for the win. Nathan's whole job is telling Uriah, you are trash. You are a trash person, and you are doing trash things. I mean, he doesn't say it quite like that. But he does pass along God's message. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. A pretty tame way of saying that God is not about cheating and killing and lying and abuse. In fact, everything that David has done, flies in the face of covenant relationship with the God who established Israel. I have to say I don't love the parable that Nathan comes up with. A poor man's darling pet lamb is taken by a rich man who was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to be a meal for a guest. This parable is still about the property of men about trading property. But it is a parable that David could understand. He was a shepherd, after all. And contextually, it is very convicting. You are the man, proclaims Nathan. And David understands, at least to a degree, what he has done. He understands that he has violated not Bathsheba's consent, perhaps, but certainly Uriah's. Because, of course, had he asked Uriah and listened and respected, hey, Uriah, how about like an indecent proposal type of situation? Of course Uriah would have said, what? No, dude. 
go back to bed. There is <clears throat> zero about this story, absolutely zero, that reads as an ideal situation. And the consequences for David's misdeeds fall most harshly on Bathsheba, who is in the bind of having to marry the person who assaulted her. And it's, it's her only option. She can't strike out on her own with her husband dead and having left her father's house and pregnant with another man's child. And then the child that she bears dies shortly after his birth. And David's idea of comforting her is to sleep with her again. Maybe given the opportunity to bear another child is, in fact, comfort to Bathsheba in that situation. But David is no saint. His house is falling into shambles. His relationships begin to crumble around him. So what? So what is the takeaway from this story? What are we to do with the heaviness of yet another grim story of power gone wrong? I am going to start with you, men. Well, for starters, don't be David. But remember, you don't have to go to the lengths that David did to violate consent to take power and privilege for granted, even in trusting relationships, even in intimate relationships. And men, do be a Nathan. Be better than Nathan, actually. Because I'm pretty sure that he still only saw women as property, not as humans. But be the one who notices the one who calls out, the one who cuts off mansplainers and redirects conversation, the one who amplifies the voices of women, calling attention where attention should be called. And do not do this expecting pats on the back. Do it because it is your job. Do it because you are human and women are human also. women and non-binary folk, if you are Bathsheba, I'm sorry. If you have had an experience like Bathsheba's, I hope that you can speak it into an ear who will listen and believe. And for we who identify as female or non-binary, it's also complicated because we do still have power and privilege that we can misuse because we haven't realized it. I've said it before, I'm still figuring this out myself. I misuse my power as a pastor, as a parent, as a white person in a neighborhood where many people are people of color. Ijeoma Aluo, who is a woman of color, speaks and writes about race and privilege and talks in her, own, in her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, about the complications of her own privilege. As a black woman, she says she still has the privileges of being able-bodied and light-skinned, educated and informed. I know that the phrase check your privilege is thrown around with, as a bit of a joke and a buzz phrase, but it does us well to examine the privileges that we have. And remember that in all of our interactions and relationships, there are dynamics of power and privileges that are playing out all the time. 
The voice of Nathan to my 15-year-old self in that situation in the taxi would have noticed and said, get your hands off of her, would have called BS. A Nathan to locker room talk would say, stop objectifying women. I don't like it. Nobody likes it. Stop it. The good news in hearing Bathsheba's Me Too story, in hearing all of the awful stories in the Bible, is also in hearing and being called to prophecy. It is an understanding that God's desire is not for destruction. It's not for the ultimacy of power and empire, but for care. For understanding common humanity. These narratives of the Hebrew Bible are hard. May we both hear and be the prophet in the stories that we experience.